What are we to make of the Apollo 11 mission on its 50th anniversary? Jill Lepore will be here to talk about seven new books that look back at that historic moment and its repercussions. What would New York be without the plaza? Julie Setao joins us to talk about the secret life of America's most famous hotel. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Jill Lepore joins us now. She is the author of many books, including most recently, This America, and before that, These Truths. She is a professor of American history at Harvard University and a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. And on top of all of that, she reviewed seven books for us this week in the book review about the anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. Jill, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So every time there's an anniversary, and a 50th anniversary is a big one, there are the books that come. We sent you a slew of them, and you reviewed seven of them. That's not even all of the ones that are coming out at this time. And I want to talk about those books a little bit specifically, but also sort of the the Apollo landing and, and what it meant at the time, what it means now. These are issues that you wrote about in your essay. Generally speaking, we look at this as something to celebrate, but you also took this as an opportunity to kind of take stock of the moment. So let's start with the celebration just a teeny bit. I mean, what exactly are we celebrating with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo landing? That's actually a great question. I'm not myself such a big fan of commemoration at anniversaries, although I think it does serve a useful purpose of drawing our attention to the passage of time. I mean, think about the D-Day anniversary this year. It was really sort of important and interesting to take stock and think about the difference between what this was a 75th D-Day celebration as against the 50th. So there's something sort of useful as a, it's just kind of clocking the time and noticing what's changed and what's the same. That is a kind of useful thing about anniversaries. But I think on balance, most historians would say it's a really artificial way to note the passage of time because it it almost kind of collapses everything like a slinky back into like a kind of little compressed as if, you know, you kind of, as a historian, you want to pull things apart and, and note what happened in each of those 50 years, not just, okay, there was 1969 and now it's 2019 and what's the difference? So it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny kind of assignment, but it's also fun because it's one of the times that people ask historians, hey, what do you think? Right. Uh, so it's fun to, to take stock of these books. Also, it's a bunch of films as well, right? There's a, a, the Apollo 11 film, that documentary that came out of kind of just uh, re-edited footage. And there's a big American Experience multi-part series, I think, out beginning of July called Chasing the Moon. So I, I spend a little time with, with those films as well, just to kind of refresh my visual memory. Because one of the things that's so interesting about this anniversary I, I think it shares this with Vietnam, of course, with the same era and of all the kind of sort of the 1968 political mayhem moments or other 60s commemorations that we've just been through. That's really visual memory that many Americans have. What's interesting is you started off your review, actually, talking about the visual specifically and about a book called Hasselblad and the Moon Landing by Deborah Ireland, which looks at... The photographs, right, and the images, and and what what was that book about, and why are those images so powerful? You know, it's it, like with the um, maybe the you know JFK's assassination in 1963. This is a television era 
people will say, people of a certain generation will say, I remember watching the moon landing, like a lot of like people a little bit older than me, like in their PJs or their footy pajamas coming down and watching it on TV. I don't remember watching the moon landing. I was too young to, I was three. So I don't remember watching it. But I do have a kind of visual memory of the photographs because they were kind of all over the place and you see them. I think they must have been like papering the walls of elementary schoolrooms when I was a kid. And the photographs are quite striking because they they seem a little old-timey, I think, because the Hasselblad, like a lot of them were these kind of square format black and white photographs. And then I remember as a kid thinking that outer space was black and white. Right. You know, that, yes. like, that, that, that it was just was this kind of like sort of snowy, grainy, black and white world out there, that the moon was gray. <laughs> Actually, you're sort of surprising me because I feel like I still think that <laughs> because yeah, of those like images. Yeah, space is black and the planets and the moons are gray, except for Earth, which is blue and green. And mm-hmm. everything else is this kind of dingy dishrag <laughs> color. And I think that, that it, it, I get, I'm kind of fascinated by what sort of sticks in your brain as, as memory. And so the Hasselblad, I think they kind of weirdly influenced a lot of people's thoughts. But I was I was looking at this lovely book of photographs and a lot of these books are visually very beautiful because they're very well illustrated because because of the visual just powerful impact of seeing Earth from the moon or from, from space and seeing the surface of the moon. I was really fascinated in thinking about those the photographs of the the first footprint, the moon but I don't know if you about you, Pam, but I had moon boots as a little kid. Like remember when everyone had moon boots and they all had that same footprint, right? They actually, as you as you trudged through the snow as a little kid, you left the tracks behind you that Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin left on the moon with their little moon boots because we were all little NASA kids. I was very moved by that, that sense of belonging to the human race together, that we all left those footprints on the moon. And that's something so stirring to me about the and this anniversary really, I think, in its most powerful way, brings that home that we have a shared fate as a, as a species and as creatures of a particular planet in the universe. And these were people who went forth in our name. See, that all sounds so positive. And I'm, I'm just going to bring it very briefly. I don't want to go on a tangent about it, but there's another 50th anniversary this year, which is the anniversary of the Stonewall, which launched the LGBTQ movement. And in that case, you have a, a, a period where things were really terrible um, and then very steady and accelerating progress on that front. Not that everything is all solved and, and perfect at this point in time, but That's not necessarily the case with the moon. And you're talking about this feeling of unity. But what you write about in your in your essay, which I think not a lot of people think about now, is that this was a very divisive mission to begin with. Can you talk about sort of who was opposed to us going to the moon and why? I do feel these sort of stirrings, but I also in reviewing the scholarship and this new cache of books was was really brought home to me how little public support there was for the mission at the time in the 1960s. And I think our deep ambivalence today is uh, an after effect of that. And it is really different from the Stonewall anniversary. I just just had just was in New York recently, went to the New York Public Library's lovely little exhibit, Love and Resistance, the kind of visual memory of the, of, of the 50, 50th anniversary of Stonewall and has a kind of very striking different cast. What was really powerful to me in reading these works, and especially those of them that were not committed to the work of 
kind of blindless boosterism, which is a minority of these books. But Douglas Brinkley has a very good new book, and I think the American Experience volume that is the companion book to the documentary film series is coming out is also very good at restoring to our attention that at no point before the actual moon landing did any majority of Americans support the space, the, the mission to, to land on the moon. People were really ambivalent about it. It was it was a, it was a roilingly complicated decade in any event, and big government spending programs were controversial and becoming increasingly so. And certainly the transition from Kennedy to Johnson was a bumpy one in terms of public support for this grand, you know, new frontier, so rhetorically beautifully stated and defended by Kennedy, maybe not so hugely wonderfully advanced by Johnson. And by the time we get to 69, you know, it's a very different country. One of the kinds of objections that maybe maybe it's least surprising when you think about it, stop to think about it for just a minute, is the civil rights movement. And that's How, covered in the in the Douglas Brinkley book, American Moonshot, yeah, John F. Yeah, Kennedy yeah. and the Great Space Race. And people, you know, even on the very, you know, the day before the launch, Ralph Abernathy of the, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was at you know, the Kennedy Space Center protesting. You know, people, there's this great photographs of people marching with signs, you know, I don't I can't recall them exactly, but, you know, pointing out that the tremendous amount of money that has gone into the space program you know, as as these civil rights activists would suggest could have been better used. And that it was a sort of a fool's errand, a kind of very flashy, you know, there's a very deep criticism of the mission on the part of the civil rights movement. And something that I really hadn't paid attention to, and this didn't actually come out in these books, but something I just read about on my own while I was working on the essay, was how powerfully some very prominent women writers didn't, it's not that they objected to the mission, but that they called attention to the nature of its claims. This is, you know, Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition, which she writes right after Sputnik in, in 1958, talks about this transition after Sputnik in which it became a kind of commonplace to consider the earth to be our prison from which mankind must escape. And how dangerous of an idea that is, and how contemptuous it is of the lives of, of, of everyone here, except for a very few. And then there's a kind of Rachel Carson who I'd spent a lot of time with last year writing an essay for The New Yorker about her and uh, got completely fascinated with her. She writes this, you know, a very moving letter about how concerned she is at this idea of conquest, that the taking the conquest of the earth to outer space now. There's a sort of, just a swaggery, burly, insecure masculinity of it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it all to be brutally candid is something that Carson really nailed in her own writing and really understood as explaining a lot that was going on with uh, other kinds of arrogance about about the earth and about the environment, broadly speaking. And there's a lot of that in these books. That, 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 you know, a lot of big-selling, best-selling history books are just a whole lot of swagger. I mean, they're, they're really... It's, it's uncomfortable as a reviewer to point that out because I know people love to read. A lot of people love to read these books. They're like the Father's Day big gift books. And a lot of them are just, just a lot of bluster, a lot of chest thumping, and very little scrutiny of consequences of actions, of motivations for actions, very little understanding of economic and social structure, sources and nature of political change. So I found that, I mean, I'm sure this comes across in my review, I found that awfully frustrating because there's enormous sophistication in American historical writing. And the books that American book buyers buy aren't really necessarily the most sophisticated. And I 
I, I puzzle over that because I think readers want quite a bit more, but what's kind of brought to the fore to them, the kind of books that, in fact, get sent out to reviewers tend to be these big, swaggering, blustery, the greatness of men and their accomplishments books. And so I wanted to take the occasion of the Apollo landing, which I do find majestic and beautiful and wondrous and awesome in all these ways and was obsessed with as a kid and wanted to become an astronaut. I... I find it wonderful, but I also think we appreciate its wonders much more when we understand the political contest of which it was a part and the way in which it worked as the kind of underside of Vietnam. And I, and I think that does come across powerfully in the best of these books. You talked some, somewhat about the, the sort of the cultural and the social and the implications at the time. You also mentioned cost. And just to throw out a couple of figures from your review, that the mission landing cost $25.4 billion, $180 billion in today's money. And then to your point about what money wasn't being spent on at the time, that it cost, I think it was 10 or $12 a day to feed an astronaut in space, and it would have cost $8 a day to lift a child sort of out of poverty and, and feed a child in America. So I thought those were really interesting figures. But let's get to the swagger. This was, as you point out in your essay, the space race was a political issue from the get-go, a military issue and a political issue. But let's talk about it first in terms of the politics. Was it politically effective, advantageous for the Democrats to to have sort of – it was mainly Kennedy who really got this going – Yes, absolutely. And I would say, I mean, to be clear about the cost, I am a very great supporter of federal government funding for pure scientific research. Like, I I don't myself have that critique. Like, I think there are all kinds of knock-on effects of spending money on good research. And that case is really important to make. But the case that was made at the time was not that case, right? The case the Kennedy administration was making, to your point, was not it's really important that the federal government support scientific research because it, it uplifts all of us in all these meaningful and important ways. The case that the Kennedy campaign was making, certainly privately, but then in some, to some degree to the American public was, Eisenhower has failed you because we have, there's a missile gap and the Soviets are ahead of us and we haven't spent enough money on defense and we haven't spent enough money on scientific research and we haven't spent enough money on technology. And after Sputnik this even happened before Sputnik, but after Sputnik, Kennedy, you know, was able to kind of bring that to a larger audience and say, oh, look, now this is clear. It's proof. You know, the, the, the Russians have launched a satellite and, you know, you can, on, with your ham radio, you can hear it going beep, beep, beep from outer space and you should be terrified because what they can do with that satellite is they're going to be eventually able to launch weapons from these satellites and they can also see you and you should be terrified. And this is Eisenhower's fault. And this is why the Democrats should take over the White House and should take over Congress because the Eisenhower Republicans have failed you. And so the Democratic Party, including Johnson, you know, Johnson held these hearings right after Sputnik, you know, as in the Senate, calling for scrutiny of the federal government's failure to put adequate funds behind technological development, missile development. And so there's a lot of that that goes on that's a military argument, the kind of complicating thing with, with NASA, which is incredible. It was an incredible act of Eisenhower's to find found NASA, you know, after Sputnik to establish it as a civilian space agency was, you know, kind of to take the high road. This isn't actually about missile development. This is about, the, you know, this important scientific work for the sake of broadening human knowledge. 
But that claim, too, gets taken up by Kennedy really successfully. I want to talk about that claim and its legacy, because one of the things that these books try to do, by and large, is is not just to kind of look at this moment back in time, but to look at what the long-term repercussions were and what, if any, impact these had today. And I want to run very quickly through the titles so that people know the books we're talking about. The other books that you wrote about include Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race, and The Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11 by James Donovan. Chasing the Moon by Robert Stone and Alan Andrews. We mentioned Douglas Brinkley's book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy, and the Great Space Race. One Giant Leap by Charles Fishman. Apollo to the Moon by Tassil Muir Harmony. And Apollo's Legacy by Roger D. Launius. One of the arguments that, that is made in these books is that, or at least in, in at least one of them, is that this was the beginning not just of an investment in pure science, but also in technology and that you wouldn't have had sort of the technological, the digital revolution of today if we hadn't kind of started here with the space race. Is that persuasive, that argument? I think it misses a little bit. I mean, much of what we have by way of when we say technology, we're talking very narrowly about kind of digital matters is a larger consequence of the rise of the national security state, you know, starting in 1947 with the National Security Act. I mean, I think the the degree to which the federal government made an active decision to support research universities in developing research that could be used in waging the Cold War, which includes surveillance, which includes weapons development, which includes a lot of environmental science, a ton of environmental science is funded by the federal government even in the 1950s because of the need to understand environmental forces for nuclear weapons deployment and the consequences of nuclear weapons deployment. So it's not really the space program per se. I, I think, you know, it's an occasion to point out that the federal government is spending a lot of money for building things that we now use every day that, you know, you and I are likely using right now as we speak. But it, it, it misses the point to say that that has to do with, you know, the, the, the mood shot in the 1960s. That really starts in 1947. And it contorts the, the very structures of knowledge in the, in the United States and certainly is to some degree around the world, right? When the federal government says, The knowledge that counts is physics, behavioral sciences, environmental sciences. Well, what happens to the humanities? Right. (laughs) The long-term consequences of the national security state is that you know, we talk about STEM now, but they were talking about basically STEM starting in 1947. Like, I thought you were going to tie it to not enough people concentrating in history anymore, which well, I they're mean, not. <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I do think that that's a huge crisis, but not necessarily for the reasons we that can't blame the Apollo kind of 11. Hands no, I'm not blaming. <laughs> I'm not. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I think, and I think that's that's a silly thing to do. But I guess the there are the way many of these books want to then celebrate. Apollo 11 is, oh, and all these technologies are great things that came out of this program. And I, I, are they great? Are they, are they really great? I mean, what's great is seeing how when enough resources and enough spirit of commitment and ingenuity is put behind a massive project that seems well beyond the realm of the possible, it can be achieved. And so we might, I mean, I might say, well, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could put that kind of energy behind uh, sustainable agriculture or uh, renewable energy or combating the long-term effects of climate change or indeed, as there is still time, diverting <laughs> climate change. You know, that, that it's very exciting to think about what can be done when there's enough commitment and enough and enough resources. And this is a great story about that. But it 
it is to put blinders on to fail to understand that this is actually really isn't just the inverse of Vietnam, but is actually part of that larger, broader transformation in the federal government. I want to end by taking the blinders off for a minute, talking about something that you talk about in your essay at the end as well, called the overview effect. What is the overview effect? I loved this. I came across this. Someone sent me this article which I just thought was kind of fantastic, where some social scientists had noted and, and then begun to study and label the so-called overview effect, which describes the psychological and really kind of emotional, maybe spiritual experience of people who do go even just into the Earth's orbit, not necessarily beyond the Earth's orbit, but who can who have the experience of seeing the Earth while not being on the Earth. And that's different from the famous blue marble photograph, of course, that launches, a, kind of becomes an icon of the environmental movement. Like, we know what that photograph looks like. But that's a, and that, and that can be very moving to look at that photograph. But to have the physical experience of seeing that, being in a vessel, this fragile little kind of tin can flying around in space and see the Earth, that people of all nationalities, as many different people have been in space now, report this feeling of utter transcendence. And even many people cry, they're they're just they're completely overwhelmed by, it's almost a sense of the divine, but it's the divinity of our, of our vulnerability. And they, they report, uh, unsurprisingly, there are no national boundaries on the earth. <laughs> like these are fictions, the things that divide us. You can't see them. And so some sense of that, that the, the unity and the, and the beauty and the fragility and vulnerability. And it, it seems transformative in the moment, but people also report coming back from those trips themselves transformed by a sense, a, a different sense of who they are, who we all are, why we are here. It is really mind-boggling. Like the last thing I want to do is go up in a rocket, but it is incredible to read about it. It's like reading early conversion narratives and the kind of early days of Christianity, say. I mean, it, had, it's, it's just, it was quite beautiful. And I was really moved by that. But I also, I just stumbled over it thinking about, you know, if if an obstacle to tackling our changing climate is people not having a sense that we are all in this together, not the not believing in the existence of this in the, in the, in the science, but some sort of lack of shared will and shared commitment, then we got to be able to get that without needing to fly into space in a rocket built by Elon Musk. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I feel like maybe that is the solution, that we all somehow get out to space and then that will uh, cure the all those divisions that you talked about, the social, cultural, political, economic no, divisions no, back here on Earth. <laughs> you just don't want to get into that. <laughs> People should not be spending billions of dollars to send billionaires to space. All right. Jill, thank you so much for reading all these books, for writing about them so eloquently, for including as well, I should mention, some older books in your essay, as well as the new screen things that are coming out on TV and elsewhere this summer to commemorate the 50th anniversary. And also mention again that you have your own new book out. It's called This America. Jill, thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot. That was Jill Lepore. She is a professor of American history at Harvard, author of many books, staff writer for The New Yorker, and author this week of our cover essay on the Apollo 11 50th anniversary.
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Julie Setau is here in the studio to talk about her new book, The Plaza, The Secret Life of America's Most Famous Hotel. Julie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So this is your first book, and it is a biography of a building. How do you write the story of a building? What are the challenges? Because it is a kind of genre. Yeah, it's true. It is. Writing a, a biography of a building, I think really the approach is, you know, the stories that can be told through the building and the people that live in the building or have stayed there. So mm-hmm. that's really the angle that I took. I really tried to unearth stories and tales and anecdotes that had been forgotten to history and bring the building to life over more than 100 years. All right. Well, you picked a good building, the Plaza (laughs) Hotel, known not just to every New Yorker, but probably known worldwide. So let's start with the birth of this building. Who built it? Like, What were their ambitions? Why did they build this hotel? And then what was the hotel landscape like in New York at that time? So the building was erected in 1907, and Harry Black was the builder, him and a German emigre named Bernhard Beinecke. And the plaza from the very beginning was always a trophy property. So they really had big ego. They had big dreams and plans. They wanted this to be the most expensive hotel ever built. It was. Meaning in terms of its construction or the cost of actually staying there? No, it's construction. It cost $12.5 million, which back then was, you know, unheard of. And actually, magazines wrote articles about how no one would ever spend that kind of money ever again on a building. Its opulence was unprecedented. It had more than 1,600 chandeliers and two men they hired just to dust the chandeliers. The the level of decor and also the structure was, was really historic. At the time, it's interesting, the plaza really, from the very beginning also, was sort of the forefront of, of so many trends. So the first guest to stay at the plaza was Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt, who is one of the country's wealthiest men. And His moving into the plaza really helped usher in this concept of apartment living in New York, actually. Before that, so many wealthy people lived in single-family mansions. And at the beginning, the idea of a hotel and an apartment were sort of interchangeable. Ninety percent of those who were checking in, like Vanderbilt, actually lived full-time at the hotel. So it really did usher in this acceptance of apartment living. Was there some other premier hotel in New York at that time that they were trying to kind of outdo Absolutely. The Waldorf Astoria, the original Waldorf, which is not the Waldorf we know today. It was torn down to make way for the Empire State Building. But the original Waldorf was really the, you know, premier hotel in New York at the time. And actually, the architect who designed the original Waldorf also designed the Plaza Hotel. And its intention was to compete with the Waldorf and and supersede it as the as New York's best hotel. Let's talk a little bit about the scale of the construction and the operation. You mentioned $12.5 million. What is that in today's money? It's um, more than $300 million. Okay. Which, you know, is not unprecedented necessarily now, but back then it certainly was. 
One of the cool things I found during the construction of the hotel was a murder. I don't know if you're interested in that. We're always interested in murder here at the Book Review Podcast. Tell us about the murder. Union tensions have always been a trend in New York. And when the hotel was under construction, the builders hired non-union construction workers as well as union construction workers. And it was sort of the beginning of the labor movement. And the union guys were, were very upset at this. And they actually threw the body of a security guard off the unfinished eighth floor of the plaza, which was a big deal at the time. New York Times wrote about it. It was called Murder in Midair, since that was considered so high, the eighth floor. And but, you know, like so many stories in New York, it was forgotten by history. The first of many scandals to come involving the Plaza Hotel. I want to get back to the workers a little bit later because they didn't always throw people over the side of buildings, (laughs) but also did some some really great work in terms of helping save the hotel, save the hotel. Was the Plaza Hotel successful from the get go? And what was the foundation of that success? Was it the people who stayed it there, or was it the the buy-in from the rich and powerful in New York? What was it that, that led to the success? It really was successful at the very beginning. It was, as I had mentioned, an unprecedented level of luxury, and many people moved in because the the food that was available there, the technology of the rooms, things like thermostats or automatic clocks was, was a, an amazing feat at the time. And it was always a draw for the very wealthy and the upper class from the very beginning. So Harry Black, who I mentioned, he lived in the penthouse at the top of the plaza. He really reveled in the success. He was sort of this Trump character before there was Trump. We'll get to Trump. (laughs) Yeah. What was it like if you lived in the plaza at that time? We all know Eloise, for example, and and Kay Thompson's great picture book. I'm going to use heroin with air quotes. But what was it actually like to have a residential apartment in the Plaza Hotel? Back in 1907, the lower floors were the most attractive since elevators were still somewhat new, new inventions. So the lower floors had these enormous suites multiple rooms and the plaza was erected in such a way that you could actually make as many bedrooms in the suites as you wanted by opening doors through the hallways. On each floor, there were uh, servants available to serve food or to clean the rooms or whatever it was that the guests wanted. So you could have guests, you know, room service at any moment, maid Absolutely. service whenever there you was, wanted. There was uh, a pneumatic tubes that were used to bring food straight from the kitchens up to the room so they would stay warm, which was very unusual at the time. There was, as I mentioned, automatic clocks and thermostats for the rooms. The furnishings, they spent more than $8 million in today's dollars on silver flatware that were used in all the rooms and Edwardian furnishings. They went to Ireland to buy lace and the Baccarat store in France was where they purchased all their glassware. So it was just very beautiful and anything you could want from turtle soup to kangaroo meat was served. And if you wanted to, let's say, host a party and you lived at the Plaza Hotel, did you have access to the public room so that you could say, I'm going to use the ballroom tonight to host a dinner party? There was actually, at the very beginning, there was a, since so many of the guests were actually full-time residents, there was a a dining room that was set aside for them that was only accessible for the, the residents and a separate dining room for transient guests. 
So that's, they could absolutely host parties there. There were many more restaurants than today. So there was a grill room in the basement where they had a dog check room and you could bring your dogs when you had dinner and you could have dinner parties there and they served all kinds of grill meat. In the summers, they even poured water on the floor and made it an ice skating rink so you could ice skate. <laughs> I don't know. You mentioned that the ground floor was actually, the, the lower floors were the more coveted real estate, which is the opposite, obviously, of what we have today. When did that flip? And, and did they have elevators from the beginning? And was it just that people were nervous about them and didn't trust them? Yeah, they did. They had elevators from the beginning. They were called plungers was the name of the elevators. That could, does not <laughs> inspire confidence. It's true. You could, they had glass doors and you could see the pistons that went up and down the mechanicals uh, workings of the elevators. And the, actually, those elevators were used through the 1970s. They were, they were a big feature of the plaza at the time. But, you know, it was always seen as more elegant to be on the lower floor. So the state suite, which was their big suite, was on the second floor. And But when did that flip? When did the penthouse sort of become the place that you actually wanted? Right. Well, Harry Black did live up at the top of the building. So, so there was still some appreciation for the views that you could get at the top. But I think as as the technology for elevators were improved and, you know, the style changed for buildings and more buildings were taller, it became more attractive. I don't know exactly what year <laughs> that happened. Well, everything that, that goes up in New York must fall down. And the plaza has had many ups and downs over the decades, beginning in 1930 with the stock market plunge. What happened to the plaza? What happened to the plaza was what happened to many hotels at the time. Obviously, in 1929, the Wall Street crash, which actually Harry Black, who was the, the main face of the plaza, he had been a big Wall Street booster and he lost much of his fortune in the crash and tried to kill himself in the penthouse bathtub. But he survived, but he later, later was successful. But in terms of the plaza itself, Prohibition was also going on at the same time. So you had two sort of a double whammy, I would say. A lot of guests preferred places like the 21 Club or the illegal speakeasies rather than hotels, which were too big and too noticeable to serve illegal alcohol. So they lost many guests in that way. And then also the Depression. So they closed several of the of the great rooms at the plaza during that period. Um, the Oak Room was turned into a brokerage office. Um, and it was tough going, for sure. And what happened to Harry Black? He tried to, to drown himself in his bathtub. He was revived by his valet, but uh, the following year, in 1930, he shot himself in the head and was not able to survive that wound. Let's talk about some of the people who did survive in the Plaza Hotel during that period and also helped keep it going, as I understand it. Who were the 39 widows? They were a quirky group of very wealthy women who, and a few men, I should say, who over the decades lived at the plaza. Most of them were widows. There were a few that really stuck out. The reason why they're called the 39 widows isn't really known because there were many more than 39 of them. <laughs> the 39 <laughs> steps, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. But they were an eccentric group. There was a woman who liked to walk around the perimeter of the plaza and, and clean up the sidewalk using her umbrella's tip. She would stick it in the cigarette butts and, and put them in the garbage cans. There was Clarabelle Walsh, who was one of the most famous of the widows. She was best known for hosting the first ever cocktail party 
and uh, she was. How do we know it was the I first know. ever cocktail That's party? That's what the what Washington was Post said. All right. And was it in the Plaza Hotel? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was. Um, it was before she moved into the hotel. She was an interesting character in that she created her own myth about herself. I would say she always claimed that she moved in in 1907, but my research showed that it was probably during the 1920s after her divorce that she moved into the plaza. So the cocktail party took place before her plaza residence. She was from a very famous Kentucky family. She was very wealthy. She loved Broadway. She was good friends with Ed Sullivan. She hosted all sorts of Broadway stars. And she actually was even Kay Thompson, who you mentioned earlier. She was a... The author of Eloise. Yeah. Kay copied many of her things in her book. The... First cocktail party apparently did not take place at the Plaza Hotel, but many other famous parties did. How did it become known as a kind of the place to host a party in New York and probably most famously the black and white ball? Truman Capote at the time said it was uh, the only beautiful ballroom left, so that's why he chose it. He did dither and dather over the guest list, but in terms of picking the plaza, he did not. He and was the year was... Sure. Truman Capote hosted it in 1966. It was the Monday after Thanksgiving. It was a very rainy night. As I had mentioned, Truman Capote had really a tough time picking his guest list. He ended up with about 540 guests. They ranged from Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow to the doorman at his apartment building and many of the people he interviewed in, in Cold Blood, which was the book that was a huge bestseller at the time and why he hosted the party. It was really to celebrate his success, but he felt like it was somewhat gauche to throw himself a party. So he picked Catherine Graham, the publisher of The Washington Post, as the honoree. It had always been a favorite back from the time of the 1930s and the war era. There were always debutante balls at the plaza. They had a lot of wartime uh, bond drives for, for the war effort. Uh, it was always a big place for the soci- for society to celebrate its events. And in addition to balls and parties, it was also the place to have tea, tea at the plaza. And, you know, you don't really think about tea anywhere else in New York City and perhaps tea at the Russian Tea Room. How did tea at the plaza become a thing? It was always served at the at the Palm Court, which is where tea at the plaza takes place. And the Palm Court has an interesting history. It was always a gathering spot right in the center of the hotel. Its location was sort of very central. And from the very beginning, it was lots of stories about the plaza took place at the Palm Court, I should say. Mrs. Patrick Campbell, who was a famous actress, she smoked a cigarette there right when it first opened and it caused a huge scandal. Because women Um, weren't supposed to smoke at the time? No, not at all. She was quite upset and stormed out. There were stories that I uncovered about women who wore stockings, which was scandalous at the time, and were kicked out. In terms of the, the tea, I think that that sort of just took place over time as fewer places had tea in New York. It was one of the few places you could go for high tea, so... And Eloise is another, I mean, if you took tea at the Plaza Hotel anytime from the 1980s onward, you're kind of surrounded by Eloise memorabilia for sale. It's true. There's still a portrait of Eloise hanging in the hall right outside the Palm Court. And to this day, tourists still come and take their photos in front of it. To me, the most interesting thing about Eloise is really Kay Thompson, who I focused mostly on in the book, who is the creator of Eloise. She was a really eccentric character herself. She had created this persona 
as sort of a joke among her friends. Did um, she live at the plaza? She did. She lived there off and on after the Eloise books were so successful. They gave her a free suite at the plaza for decades, and it wasn't until the 1970s when New York and the plaza were struggling that they evicted her, actually, and gave her only 24 hours to leave. They did. (laughs) Wow. She was not happy. Another woman who is perhaps not necessarily known to the outside world but was among the 39 widows who we might want to know about is Fanny Lowenstein. She later tangled with one of the more famous of the owners of the plaza, Donald Trump. But who was Fanny Lowenstein and why did she cause Donald Trump such trouble? Fanny Lowenstein was one of the last widows still left at the plaza. She was there through the 1980s. She had moved in several decades earlier, and actually several rooms at the plaza were under rent stabilization because during the war years they they instituted this, and because there were actual residents at the plaza who lived there, they were eligible to be under these regulations. So you could live cheaply at the Plaza Hotel. Certain people could, yes, who had been there for a long time, and she was certainly one of them. And you could not evict her. You could not raise her rent. What did she pay? She paid, I think, around $800 a month for a room that would have gone for more than $1,000 a night. So it was was, uh, very difficult. And she was a very cantankerous challenging persona. She would stomp around the hotel and cause lots of scenes. She complained about everything. According to some people I interviewed, she even uh, relieved herself on the floor of the Palm Court at one point because she was so upset about some drama going on with the staff. And as you mentioned, she tangled a lot with Donald Trump. He bought the hotel in 1988. She was still there. At first, they got along great, but then she soon made his life hell. So. (laughs) Why did Donald Trump buy the Plaza Hotel? Like so many people, men, I should say, because they were all men who purchased the Plaza, it really was a trophy property. It was a way to establish himself. In 1988, he was at the top of his game. He was this real estate tycoon. All the banks wanted to lend to him. He had always loved the Plaza, his office in Trump Tower has huge windows that look right over onto the building. So he always wanted to buy it. He called it the Mona Lisa. Yes, he called it his Mona Lisa and a masterpiece. So he paid nearly half a million dollars per hotel room for the hotel, which was an absolute record. I should say he he didn't actually pay for it. He borrowed the entire amount from a consortium of banks. And uh, he proceeded to put a lot of debt on the hotel And even though it did quite well under his tenure, and it was mostly Ivana who was in charge at that time, and she did quite well. He uh, said he would pay her a dollar a year plus as many dresses as she wanted. Yes, exactly. And she actually kept that dollar framed in her plaza office. She was actually, by many accounts, a very exacting but successful manager. And she was the closest thing that the plaza's ever come to a woman owner. She would even get down in, in, on her hands and knees in her fancy Chanel suits and tell the housekeeping staff how to make beds. But no matter how well she did, Trump had made such a, a, a bad business deal that the plaza couldn't make enough to pay down its debt. And he became the only person ever to bankrupt the hotel. How did that end? <laughs> well, like so many things, it was part of a larger, you know, a number of bankruptcies he was going through at the time. There was a recession. And the banks. So we're in 1992, the recession of 92. Yes, exactly. And uh, the banks decided that rather than 
make him declare personal bankruptcy. They would prop him up. They thought it was their best way to to save their investments. And the plaza was one of them. It, it went through a corporate bankruptcy. And eventually it was sold to a Saudi prince and a, a billionaire from Singapore. And it was the start of foreign ownership at the plaza, which is still the case today. Who owns the plaza now and what is the plaza like? It's owned today by the hospitality arm of the government of Qatar. It is a boutique hotel. There's a, a about 280 hotel rooms, but it is mostly condominiums for the very wealthy. So in effect, going back to its roots. In many ways, it's true. You know, today, so many condominiums are like hotels. They Mm -hmm. offer all these hotel perks. And it's that way at the plaza now. The the difference is many of the condo owners don't actually live there. It's more of an investment than than an actual residence. Whereas in the beginning, I would say the residents actually live there full time. Can you still go and get tea at the Plaza Hotel? You can. You can get tea at the Palm Court. It's one of the few restaurants remaining. It's the Palm Court and the food court in the basement is is open. Many of the public rooms are closed. It went through a very difficult period before the Qataris bought it last year. It was owned by an Indian tycoon who's been in prison. He actually ran the hotel from his prison cell in Delhi for several years. He's still not allowed to leave India. And he owes a lot of money. So all the money that the plaza was making ended up being siphoned over to help him in India. So many of the public rooms have remained shuttered during this period, including the Oak Room and the Edwardian Room. So we've talked a lot about the people who have run the hotel or own the hotel. Let's talk just for a few minutes about the people who keep the hotel running, the workers, and what they did during these last years to really, as you put it earlier, save the hotel. I tried from the very beginning to tell their story. It was challenging in the earlier years just because no journalists really covered what it was like to work at the hotel. And and unless they wrote memoirs, it was really challenging to find their stories Mm -hmm. from over 100 years ago. I did find one uh, woman who wrote a, a memoir, which was cool, and I tried to put that in there. But over the years, the plaza workers are obviously the backbone of the hotel. And The union, as I mentioned, there's been a stories of the union throughout the decades at the plaza. The most significant recent story is the union campaign that was actually called Save the Plaza. It was a $2 million effort that the union, that the hotel union, which is a powerful union in New York, instituted to um, try to save the plaza from being completely converted into condominiums. And they were successful. The deal that the union made for the plaza is a bellwether and something that the union relies on going forward. It was it was it helped make their deal at the Waldorf Astoria, for instance. All right. You are either a resident of New York who has walked by the plaza and even been inside many times or coming to New York for the first time and you're going to see the plaza. What would you suggest that this person look for either on the facade or inside some little detail that they might not otherwise pick up on? Well, I would say that the Palm Court ceiling is very cool. It is a recreation of the original ceiling. They spent over a million dollars to redo it. And the Palm Court has the most original feel of the hotel as it was back in the beginning. I would also say 
If you can sneak into the oak room, it's really amazing. Can you sneak into the oak room? Sometimes there's construction workers doing work there, or they may be preparing for a private party. It is available for private parties, so you you can. I have a few times. Um, And also the Edwardian room. I mean, it's the architecture and the it's it's so beautiful and historic all right don't tell anyone else it's only <laughs> for our go. listeners exactly i think we'll end there we've advised everyone to try to sneak into the oak room um <laughs> and the edwardian room the book again is called the plaza the secret life of america's most famous hotel by julie Setow. julie thanks so much for being here thanks so much for having me Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. What's new this week? So the news this week takes us to Washington once again, but it's not necessarily a splashy new political book that people in the publishing industry are worried about. There's a new round of proposed tariffs that people are concerned about, which would include books this time. These are tariffs imposed on China from the Trump administration. And the proposal in this case would be a 25% tariff on roughly $300 billion worth of products from China. And the latest uh, list of products includes shoes, toys, jewelry, mobile phones, and books. Wow. And this is a huge concern for publishers. You know, you think things are printed here and distributed here, but when you're talking about children's books, illustrated books like cookbooks, Bibles even, they're largely printed in China. How big a deal is that? I mean, how much of the American publishing industry overall takes place in in, in China? Well, publishers say it would be a very big deal and potentially devastating, particularly when you're talking about children's books and illustrated books and uh, cookbooks and anything that has color in it. Not only is it cheaper to do in China, there's really just not the capacity to do it here. So they're already having trouble here. Exactly. You know, the printing shortage is it continues to be an issue for publishers. But when you're looking at something that requires photos and illustrations and, and colors and board books, those are largely printed in China and printed in a cost effective way. So this would mean higher prices for readers and book buyers, and it would mean booksellers would really face a crunch, particularly independents. So it came up this week in particular because there are hearings taking place in Washington, and several members of the book publishing community, including chief executives of publishing houses and representatives of the American Booksellers Association, went down to Washington to uh, try to basically lobby to exempt books from these tariffs, and they made a number of arguments. One of the arguments is that publishers and booksellers have very thin margins, and so imposing any kind of tariff would be really problematic. The other argument was that the tariffs wouldn't necessarily be punitive for China because this is not a cutting-edge industry where there are technological leaders. It would only hurt American consumers and companies. How did books get in there in the first place? Why would they add it to that potentially taxable list of items. One argument I've heard is that this latest round of tariffs, and it's been escalating, so I think the notion is just to hit them really hard with a massive, you know, $300 billion worth of products. So that has swept up a lot more consumer goods. You know, the earlier rounds of tariffs were really focused on things like agricultural and machine parts and things that, you know, consumers didn't necessarily see the effect of. But this latest round also is related to China's practices in technology transfer, intellectual property, and innovation. And so I think perhaps it's the intellectual property piece of it. Books would certainly fall under that that has swept books up. 
But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, every industry is making a case for itself. And publishers, I think, have a pretty good claim to say our situation is unique. You know, we're not like a Motorola or, you know, a cell phone company. Of course, everyone is fighting very hard because they do feel like this would be potentially, you know, a huge deal for the industry, which has has been pretty stable in recent years. You know, print sales are steady after those years of falling and sort of giving way to ebook sales. What's the timeline? When do we get an answer here? So the hearings are ongoing for a few more days. And then the my understanding is that the U.S. and China are going to have more negotiations ahead of um, the G20 summit, which is at the end of this month. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat. On Thanks, Alexandra. Yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully I'll have better news next week. All right. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Jumanica Teeb, and Concepcion de Leon. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey, Pamela. All right. I want to talk about what you all are reading. I'm also going to share an email from a listener about something that we talked about on what we're reading a few weeks ago. But, like, Tina, let's start with you. What are you reading this week? So I'm reading Julian Barnes' last novel, The Only Story, which came out last year, which I somehow missed when it came out. Yeah, he was a guest on the podcast, too. Like, how did I miss it? I work here. (laughs) You know, I don't know. But it's this really charming, wonderful story about first love and how it cauterizes your heart, basically. Like, there's always a trace of it left behind. And it's an older man telling the story of his many years affair that began When he was 19 and his lover, a married woman who lived in the same small British town in the 1960s, when they met at the tennis club and began an affair, much to the dismay of his mother, the village, the tennis club, which actually kicked them both out. I love the title, The Only Story. Does that have a specific reference in in the book? I think what he's saying is that your first love, in a sense, is your only love story. It affects every love that comes after. And I wasn't expecting this to be so, I don't know, it's told from the point of view much of it, of a 19-year-old boy. I just wasn't expecting it to like to move me in the way that it has. And, it, and, and being Julian Barnes, it's also very funny. He's talking about being home from university right before he meets this woman. And he says, my mother, perhaps hoping I would meet a nice blonde Christine or a sparky black ringleted Virginia, had signed him up for the tennis club. And he's matched with this 48-year-old married mother of two, his first day there. That's that. I'm halfway through. I'm not done. I feel like it's probably going to be sad. I'm ready for that. But the characters are wonderful. The character of the woman is great. And the character of her best friend, this chain-smoking alcoholic named Joan, (laughs) is also terrific. All right. Well, speaking of chain-smoking, I don't know, alcoholics, (laughs) Shumana, what are you reading? So I, much to my own surprise, am tearing through Craig Brown's biography of Princess Margaret called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. I should say right off the bat that I am... I'm no way sort of infected by royal fever. I'm the last thing from sort of like an Anglophile, but like I could not put this book down when I was at the beach. I mean, it really turns the like biography genre on its head. He has this whole chapter where he imagines what would have happened if Pablo Picasso, who really wanted to marry the princess, they actually got married. It's totally bananas. And I'm loving it. 
I have to say, we did a version of what we're reading called What We're Hoping to Read This Summer. Just a <laughs> okay. Well, and this was my book, <laughs> and I have not read it yet, and you're reading it. What is right. wrong with this picture? Well, there is a lot wrong with this picture because dedicated listeners of this podcast may remember that I said I was going to go study with Muriel Spark, and now I'm already stepping out on her, but it's for the princess. So I, I don't feel so bad about that. But anyway, so hide your books, hide your wives, I guess. I'm just so entranced. I loved that book, by the way, by the made-up stuff in it. Because some of the chapters, there's one where he imagines, I don't know if you've gotten there yet, that Margaret becomes queen and not Elizabeth. And he imagines a Christmas Day address told by her. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hysterical. The command of the material, I think, is really remarkable. And, oh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderfully fun biography. All right. On the opposite end of the economic spectrum, Concepcion, <laughs> you're reading about not royalty, but lowly writers. I am. I'm reading this book called Scratch, Writer's Money and the Art of Making a Living by Manjula Martin. And it combines two of my favorite topics, money and writing. So I'm really enjoying it. And it's essentially an anthology or a collection of essays slash interviews with different writers about money. And I was sort of reading it because I was interested more in the practical, the practicality of it, like sort of the practical aspect of of making money as a writer. And there's a lot of that in there. But I think what I really like about it is that you get a sense of each writer's sort of sensibility. You get a sense of their writing style. Some of the essays are really literary. Some of them are sort of like philosophical ruminations. And so I'm really, I feel like in addition to kind of learning a lot about money and the the financial aspect of writing, I'm also kind of making a list of all the writers that I now want to read. Who are some of the contributors? Some of the contributors are Purchista Kakpur, Cheryl Strayed, our very own Corey Sika, and a ton of other people, Jonathan Franzen, Jennifer Weiner, I really like it. I'm reading the one that I'm reading right now is talking about this, the first sort of Greek poet who started charging per word for his writing. And it's really interesting to read about conflict between the sponsorship system of writing or of getting paid for your writing versus actually getting paid per word and how a lot of people saw this Greek poet as um, kind of cheapening his work because he was getting paid by the word as opposed to just taking like a, a generous gift by a donor. So it's really interesting. Any favorite tip you want to share? From the book? No, so far I haven't gotten to the part where people are making good money decisions. So far people are just getting in debt for to buy books and um, Tell us when like you get that. to the happy ending. I will let you know. <laughs> Pamela, how about you? What are you reading? I'm reading a few books at a time, um, and I'm at the very beginning of two books, so I won't talk about those, but we'll talk about a book that I just finished, which is not a book that I really read for fun, but more knowledge. Um, It's called Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture by Joel Waldfogel, and he is a professor at Minnesota's Carlson School of Management, their business school, and the book is published by Princeton University Press. And what this book is trying to do is to persuade us that despite the fact that the Internet essentially has completely destroyed the music industry, the movie industry, the book industry, the publishing industry, then actually those changes are all for the good, um, that it is, in fact, a cultural renaissance. And so this is a book that I do not believe. Um, I don't agree with his conclusions But it was interesting to hear the argument presented in such a way that he's trying to persuade you and and he clearly thinks he's making his case. And there were interesting things to it, just 
I mostly disagreed because a lot of the argument is that, well, we have sort of broken down the barriers to entry, right? Anyone can write. They can put up their writing on the internet. They can self-publish. Anyone can make a music video. They can just put it on YouTube. Same thing with a movie or a TV show. And therefore, this is really great because you no longer have us gatekeepers, as we all are here at the New York Times, the sort of the media saying this is what's worthwhile and this is what isn't. And so it's easier to get in. The issue comes down to, frankly, what you talked about, Concepcion, which is, well, how do you actually make money out of this? Because there are some big winners here. However, there are a lot of losers and a lot of kind of false expectations. And I think that he's looking at this from the perspective of the consumer. So you might argue, well, the consumer is the winner here because they have so many more choices. There are so many more things to look at. But I think that if you have seen this from the perspective of the creative side, you know that, well, it's all well and good to write whatever you want, but not everyone necessarily comes to read it, nor do they necessarily pay for it. And it's very hard to, it's very hard for quality to rise. And he does a lot of analysis of things like the bestseller lists versus good reviews and kind of seeing at what points they align and don't align. And But Overall, I found that it and and having experienced it, that there is a role for the gatekeeper, which I know, again, it's it's a tricky thing to to do today, which is to defend the elites. But that what we do is curation and that there's such a glut of choice out there for the consumer that I'm not even sure that the consumer wins when there's so much choice, because it's really hard to figure out when you have thousands and thousands of videos on YouTube, like what's actually worth your time or so many self-published novels. And I'm sure plenty of people will agree with Joel Waldfogel, the author, and there were certain parts of it that I thought persuasive. But overall, it was interesting to read in that it sort of crystallized the opposite point of view for me, or at least solidified what I thought. So there's that. But I want to share actually a really lovely email that I got from a listener. Her name is Robin in Santa Rosa, California. And I know that she's a loyal listener because I've observed her tweeting about us on a regular basis and what we're talking about. But I just love this letter. She wrote, and I won't read the whole thing because it's very long, but this is for fans, fellow fans of Betty McDonald, who I've talked about on the podcast a couple of times. Hi, Pamela. I read The Egg and I on your recommendation a few months back and really enjoyed it. So when you said you had moved on to The Plague and I, I immediately downloaded it on my Kindle. I basically read that book with my jaw fully dropped the entire time. It was like reading about treatments from medieval times, total bed rest in freezing cold rooms, surgically forced collapse of the lung, and occupational therapy consisting of knitting and crocheting. It was horrifying and bizarre in equal measures. So I went down an internet rat hole to find out what the true story was behind all this. I thought you might be interested in my findings. Now this is me saying, I was interested in her findings, and and maybe some other listeners will be, too. She said, first of all, she looked up this history of tuberculosis in Washington state, and she gave a link. And here are a few takeaways. There were no scientific studies done on the effectiveness of the treatments used in the sanitariums. The counts of people who were discharged did not distinguish between people leaving because they were cured or leaving because they were dead. There is a strong possibility that Betty McDonald would have recovered anyway with no treatment at all because some people did sometimes recover for no apparent reason. She also writes this. I was fascinated by the Japanese-American character Kimi in the book. I can't remember if I talked about her in the podcast, but she is by far and away the most compelling person in the book, even more so than Betty McDonald. 
who I thought McDonald portrayed cleverly and sympathetically, and I wondered if she was based on a real person. Indeed, she was. Kimi in real life was Monica Itoy Son. She and her family were placed in internment camp during World War II. After the war, she went to college, became a clinical psychologist, and wrote a book on the second-generation Japanese-American experience in Seattle, as well as her internment camp experience called Nisai Daughter, which is still assigned reading in schools today. There's more to this letter, but thank you, Robin, for sharing all this. And any other listeners who similarly have read The Plague and I, I'm sure, will appreciate all this. If you email me, I will send you those links um, if you're interested to books at nytimes.com. And in the meantime, let's just run down the books again. Tina? All right. I'm reading The Only Story by Julian Barnes. I'm reading 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. And I'm reading Scratch, Writer's Money and the Art of Making a Living, edited by Manjula Martin. And I read Digital Renaissance by Joel Waldfogel. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Thank you.